This is an ABC podcast. I'm Lisa Leong, and long-term listeners to This Working Life would know I love non-fiction books. In fact, I generally sleep with them. And my books have been incredibly helpful in dealing with the uncertainty and change that has come with this pandemic. But I'm always on the lookout for new life-enhancing reads, so I decided to ask someone in the know for the best book to help me and you right now. Dr. Sarah Mackay is a neuroscientist and author, and the book she chose for me is James Clear's New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. She had me at Atomic. I think in terms of where we all are right now, the lessons from the book were some of the first that I fell back onto when I was trying to find a way to sort of, especially, you know, 12 years ago, back in the middle of March, when we were just sort of just trying to start to pick our way through this new world that we were suddenly thrust into, so many of the ideas that he writes about, I could pull out again and use because I wanted to get through this in a really positive way. And in a nutshell, what is an atomic habit? Yeah, I suppose if we think about what is an atom or what is an atomic habit, it's a sort of smallest piece of matter that makes up everything else. And his ideas are really focused on on this, this same concept, or certainly this book is, that when it comes to what drives us every day, when it comes to motivation, when it comes to behaviours that we perform, behaviours that we want to change, goals that we may set for ourselves, what underlies all of that, the smallest little pieces that underlie all of that, uh, habits. And he talks very much about the neurobiology of how habits are formed um, and a bit of a different way of thinking about goal setting, thinking about our work day and thinking about behaviour change. Instead of thinking about goals that are very far away, sort of these long linear type things we're trying to achieve, mm. what are the little tiny steps and processes along the way? Small habits, the tiny little pieces of the 2,000-piece puzzle that we're putting in place every day that are going to get us to where we're going. And I suppose for me, with everything that's going on now in the workplace and in the rest of our lives, a lot of the goals that we've had, a lot of these great kind of things that we've been working towards are trying to achieve, not only have the goalposts moved They've almost completely evaporated uh, for many of us. Many of us, if we're lucky enough to still be working, many of the goals that we were working towards have gone. And that just fills us with such uncertainty, makes us feel anxious, puts us in this state of kind of hypervigilance. And a lot of James Clear's teachings are really about not focusing on that anyway, not focusing on what you're trying to achieve, but what are the little habits or systems that you have in place that are going to keep you playing the game focusing on where are you trying to get to, but how are you getting there? You mentioned the neurobiology about habits and you're a neuroscientist. So can you talk us a little bit around that in plain English so that we can get our heads around why it's so powerful in terms of habits and helping us change our behaviour? Yeah, well, our brains are very clever and habits are one way of freeing brain space up to think about the things that are really important. So we can think about them not so much as a habit, but as an automated behaviour. Now, that could be uh, a, an automated motor behaviour. So learning to ride a bike takes you a little bit of time to learn to ride a bike, but eventually you never have to think about how to do it again. Your brain um, sort of turns that practice or that, that that motor skill of riding a bike into a chunk of behavior and it moves it out of the um, 
kind of outside parts of our brain, the cortex of our brain, the thinking parts of our brain, it moves them down deep into parts of the brain called the striatum where automatic behaviours get stored. Now, once they're stored in there, the brain comes across a particular cue or a context or a situation, for example, hopping on a bike, and then your brain just kind of rolls out this automated <laughs> behaviour without you having to think about it. You don't have to think about pedalling and steering and balancing once you know how. Mm. Now, the same thing happens not just for behaviour, you know, sort of automated behaviours like riding a bike. It can also be a particular thinking pattern that you may fall into, particularly sort of a, a negative thinking pattern. It may be something habitual like as soon as you wake up in the morning, you pick your phone up and you check various news channels to see what's happening. Or it could be things like if you always get public transport to work, it could be that you always like to sit on a particular seat in a bus. And what your brain essentially does is it's just any particular behaviour that it thinks, well, that's useful. I think that it's worthwhile storing that somewhere permanently. It shifts it down into the striation where it can just be rolled out without thought. And that's good because it frees your brain up to be able to think about all of the more complex decision-making, attention, sort of draining tasks that it needs to do. And so how do we therefore change a bad habit? I think there's something about consciousness here and being aware of what's happening in our brains that might help. Yeah, this is one of I mean, it's really, we never talk about habits without talking about what we perceive as a bad habit and how we want to break mm. it or change it. And this is one of the sort of, big big problems that we face because we understand so much about the neurobiology of habits and we know that if something is a true habit it's become automated it's a little bit like riding a bike we can't unlearn it it's there it's stored almost permanently in our brain so what we need to do is we need to be very mindful or conscious or learn to pay attention one on what that habit is that we don't want to perform but most importantly what is the context in which we are performing it without thinking. What is the particular cue? What is the particular person that sets you off into a particular <laughs> negative thought pattern? What is the kind of default behaviour that you have after you cook dinner without thinking? It's about thinking about what's the trigger, what's the cue, and then learning a new desirable behaviour in its place. And James Clear kind of talks quite a lot about that um, in his book that you can't break the bad habit unless you completely remove the cue or you form a new habit based on the particular cue. So you have to make it attractive and you have to make it easy and satisfying. So have you got an example of a bad work habit and how we might change that? Oh, well, I suppose, you know, a lot of people have automatic emotional responses to some of the people that they work with and I suppose an automatic emotional response perhaps to a particular manager or a particular management style may just trigger you off with the same kind of emotional response thought pattern and then perhaps behavior of either avoiding that person or a lot of people do struggle emotionally with those social interactions in the workplace and often they're associated with a particular person. So we could look at a particular emotional response to someone as being an automated habit or behaviour. So what are you going to do? You probably can't get rid of that person. Mm. I mean, I suppose you could quit the job. You could make that person invisible in your life, that particular cue. It's not going to be easy to avoid the cue. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to change your response. And then that's when the hard stuff gets in there, what are you going to do instead when you interact with that person instead of having this automated, perhaps increased heart rate, um, feeling kind of anxious about what the interaction is going to be like? Can you practice in advance 
a much more positive emotional response. One of the really cool things about emotions that most people don't realise and that we're learning from neuroscience is that you can practice an emotional response in advance and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse in much the same way a, a musician could mentally rehearse a music piece or a athlete could mentally rehearse perhaps a particular move, like a gymnast could practice their moves in their mind's eye. You can practice your emotional response to that person so much so that that you've repeated it over and over and over and over enough times that when you encounter that person, they trigger you, for want of a better word, then the new desirable emotional response gets rolled out in its place. Well, it's like you're practising that automatic response and, and making it sort of so buried in <laughs> that actually it becomes your real response when it happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I suppose there's a lot of talk about well, how many, how long does it take to break a bad habit or how long does it make take to, to make a new habit? And, you know, wouldn't it be great if it was 21 days or seven days and, you know, lots of people sell books based on those ideas. It's not so much about the number of days, it's more about the number of times you repeat something and also the amount of almost, um, I suppose, pleasure and satisfaction that you gain from that new behaviour. So if it's a highly emotional and a highly desirable um, habit and you repeat it enough times, then you're reinforcing it. So it's not really about trying it for 21 days. It might be more about trying it for 21 times. Something that I loved about the book was that I often think I need to use willpower to change habits. Mm. But in fact, James points out that the environment is very influential. In fact, he says, environment is the invisible hand that shapes human behaviour. Mm. So let's take a deep dive into this. Why is it so? These automated behaviours don't just happen randomly. They happen because of the environment that you're in. And we don't have an automated behaviour without some kind of stimulus or trigger. Now, there is some really interesting research that doesn't talk about so much in the book that one of the best times to break a bad habit or make a new habit is when you um, move house or when you move office because all of the environmental cues that have been there that have been triggering off various behaviours are suddenly not there anymore. So if you've ever moved house... Think about what happens. You don't even know how to turn the light switches on at night. I moved house about 18 months ago. The first night I was in the house, I couldn't figure out how to turn the light switches on in the kitchen. <laughs> wow. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're dissecting James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, with neuroscientist and science communicator, Dr. Sarah Mackay. James is an American blogger and speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and he's used his background in behavioural psychology to analyse how we can work better based on proven scientific research. Sarah, what are your other learnings from this book? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that he does talk about is, um, you know, setting, setting yourself up for success <laughs> and having all of the systems and processes in place that are going to enable you to get there. One of the concepts that he does talk about is habit stacking. So if you already are doing something habitual that is useful and good, perhaps you sit down every morning at your desk and you read your emails first, what is a habit that you want to start doing that you're not already doing? Sort of stack it with a habit that you already perform. So first habit's opening emails, second habit is then spending one hour writing a particular report with the Wi-Fi off, something like that. Take advantage of that, that kind of natural momentum that comes from often one desired behaviour almost chaining it to the next desired behavior. Think about what do you do automatically? What do you not do automatically? How can you pin those two together? 
it's a really useful concept for us to think about right now because so much of our external world right now has become so unpredictable and chaotic and that just makes us feel so anxious and uncertain because we're all very intolerant to uncertainty. And if we stack our habits and we have these systems and processes in place, because it's, you know, James Clear very much talks it's about the systems, not just the goals, then that gives us, it automatically gives us structure. It automatically gives us a framework and amongst all of this chaos and it anchors you to the present moment. So not only does it mean you're getting the work done that, that you need to do, it's reducing that stress and that uncertainty that automatically comes with everything that's going on out there in the world at the moment. You talk about habits and goals. Why mm. are habits so much better to focus on than goals? Apart from the fact that I can see that goals are further away, so maybe a bit more vague. Yeah, a purpose of a goal almost seems something distant. I want to write a book, I want to write an article, whereas if you have a project, you have all of these little pieces along the way. Um, and I've done a lot of thousand-piece puzzles like a lot of people have in recent months, and every time you get one little piece in, you get yourself this little pat on the back, this little reward. So the focus shifts not from where you're going but how, how are you doing that. So if goals have changed or evaporated or they're constantly moving, there's sort of an either or, and I think often it can decrease our motivation. And also having a goal doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get there. As Claire points out in his book, lots of people go off to the Olympics with the goal of winning a gold medal. Not everyone gets there. Having a goal isn't really the determinant of winning. What is the determinant is all the little habits and systems that enable you to keep on playing the game and having a project little piece in the puzzle so you write a book you wake up every day you go oh god writing this book it seems so unattainable instead get up every day and think what new little piece of information am I going to find out today that's I didn't know about that I'm going to write about I'm going to write a short paragraph on that it's like doing that one piece in a thousand piece puzzle yes you get a little reward and and there's something to do with the brain there as well, isn't there, that our brain would prefer a little hit as opposed to something which is a delayed piece of gratification. Yeah, I think for sure it's really important to have a means by where we're regularly reaching little goals because that's what kind of spurs us on and motivates us. And we get what we would call a hit of dopamine for want of better language. Dopamine's that that neurotransmitter which, you know, makes us feel good and often makes us want something or crave something. Mm. And over time when we repeat something enough, we don't get the hit of dopamine. We don't get that good feeling from actually the achievement itself. We get it from wanting the achievement. So dopamine is kind of what keeps us moving forward. And the more sort of small little hits you're getting of that, the more likely you are to have positive emotions and to be able to get up and keep going. And, and especially right now in this very uncertain time, when we have uncertainty and we have high levels of stress and anxiety, we're far less responsive to rewards. So we need to kind of keep reminding ourselves that there are little things to look forward to and to almost kind of purposefully work them into what we're doing. And so what are a couple of key principles of this book that you've taken to apply to your own work then, Sarah? One is this idea of I work on projects, not on goals. And um, I have projects, with lots of little moving pieces and parts. The other that I've come back to time and time again from this book is this idea of not what is the goal I'm working towards, but who am I becoming on my way to achieving that goal? And as James Clear says, ultimately habits matter. 
because they help us become the kind of person that we're wanting to be. When we achieve a goal, we think we're going to become this kind of person. So instead of focusing on what is it you're trying to achieve, what is the goal, who are you on your way to becoming there? I'm wanting to write a book versus I am an author. How do I behave? How does an author get up every day and behave? Instead of I want to be a better leader in the workplace, I am an exceptional leader. How does an exceptional leader behave? How can I prove that to myself every single day? So this concept about ego and who am I becoming in the process of getting there, I think is incredibly powerful and sits at the core of a lot of sort of change that we all want to make. Neuroscientist and science communicator, Dr. Sarah Mackay, with her recommended pandemic read, James Clear's Atomic Habits. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and we're going even deeper in taking a good hard look at ourselves because apparently we are not so smart. That's according to the book my next guest has brought to the table for our non-fiction book club. With me is organisational psychologist and leadership coach, Dr. Travis Kemp. Hi, Travis. Good morning, Lisa. Now, Travis, you say this book, You Are Not So Smart by David McCraney, has changed your career. How? Well, one of the passions that I have in my field is cognitive bias. So this notion that humans think that they're very rational, very considered and make good decisions has no foundation in evidence whatsoever. And What? Uh, I'm not? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. And neither am I for that matter. No, I knew that already. But um, when did you first read this book then, Travis? Oh, it would have been about... 15 years, oh, 10, 10 years ago now, I think from memory. Um, it's, it's one of those books that you leave close to your, your bedside table and you pick up from time to time just to remind yourself of, now what was that bias again and what am I experiencing? By the way, Travis, did you choose this book yourself or was it a gift? Because that says something, doesn't it, if somebody gives you a book <laughs> saying you're you not I so smart. I chose it myself. <laughs> okay. But just yes, checking. It, it would say something about me if somebody gave it to me, yes. So take us through what the book is about, go a little bit deeper on this cognitive bias idea. So the notion is that the way that we think, the way we're hardwired to think uh, and the way humans operate is flawed because, you know, in some respects we're hardwired to cluster information into, into chunks, we're hardwired to make it easy for ourselves to make decisions and, you know, we're biased by our experiences over time. So we, we see things that aren't there sometimes and hear things that aren't being said. So there's, you know, more than 190 cognitive biases that we've identified now and we continue to identify new ones. And so it's a, it's a massively interesting and well-studied area. What are some of the main cognitive biases in the workplace context then? Yeah, so there's one that um, comes up constantly and I'm always sort of bringing the attention of my clients and that's this notion of belief perseverance. And belief perseverance um, highlights the tendency that we have that once we land on a position or an opinion, um, it's very difficult, almost impossible to shift us from that opinion, even in the face of contrary evidence. So the likelihood of being able to shift somebody's view on something by arguing the science behind it, for example, whilst it makes a lot of sense, rarely happens. And we can see that play out in organisations all the time, and we're seeing it play out in the US elections at the moment even. That's a great example of it. And so, and just to extrapolate on that, does that mean that trying to convince someone by pulling out some data might not be that effective? It, that's exactly right. And, you know, regardless of the quality of the data, and we see that in um, the extreme 
um, versions of belief systems like flat earthers, like um, climate change deniers, that sort of thing. We have an enormous amount of evidence to suggest that the world is in fact spherical, and yet there is a strong belief by some that that's not the case. And tell us about the confirmation bias, because I reckon this plays out a lot at work. Yeah, so once I've landed on that position, um, I go looking for evidence to support that position and conveniently ignore the evidence that contradicts it. So, you know, we build a filter that filters out all of the uh, all of the contrary evidence and just helps me to feel better about where I've landed and my position. And hit us with one more, maybe the uh, fundamental attribution error. I love the fundamental attribution error <laughs> because it's really cool to talk about it at a dinner party. It makes you sound really smart. But the way that it plays out is this notion of, you know, if I'm a member of a team, for example, this is how it happens in the workplace. If I'm a member of a team and something's not going right for us, you know, we're not getting the results we need or we're not working the way we need to be working, then my tendency as a member of that team is to blame external factors. You know, it's the organisation structure, it's the environment, it's our leadership, it's, you know, the, the economy, it's the pandemic. It's something out there, but it's not something that we're doing. But interestingly, when I'm not a part of a team and I'm watching that team from afar and that team's not performing, then my tendency is to go looking for individuals within that team as the cause of the problem. So it's John who's not pulling their weight, it's Jill who's not performing at the level they need to be. Now, the error lies in the assumption that if something is going wrong, it starts with the individuals and their behaviour and fails to look at the system around those individuals and how that system is influencing their behaviour. So it's a it's a common misconception and it gets us into trouble all the time. And you've read this book a long time ago and you sort of said it's the sort of book that you come back to. So did you change anything specifically, Travis, as a result of reading this book? Yeah, what it does for me, uh, and again, because I come from that sort of background, I'm always looking for something that because I'm a lazy thinker like every other human, that triggers my memory or the way that I conceptualise or the way that I can explain these cognitive biases easily to other people. And what the book does is just provide a really good language and a really good primer for that, and that's why I keep coming back to it. And if we do recognise one of these biases, one of these 190 biases <laughs> in play, what should we do with that? It's a great question because the first step is just being aware of the fact that it, they exist and being aware of it highlights your sensitivity to it. So when you can feel yourself, for example, really getting rigid about a perspective or really digging your heels on an issue, then just that prompt to say, I wonder whether there's something that I'm missing here or I wonder whether there's a view that I'm not taking that would free my thinking up here. And just noticing that resistance is a really powerful tool in the first step to overcoming these biases. Recognising they're always going to be there, we're always going to have to build in a workaround to them, the key is identifying when they start to play out so that I can start working around. Yeah, but what happens if you start noticing biases in other people's behaviour? How do you not <laughs> come across as a, a bias spotter? Oh, you're so biased. <laughs> I guess being in the position that I'm in, people sort of take it in a different way. But if it's a colleague, <laughs> I think it's the same sort of formula for for um, other situations where you're trying to bring to someone else's attention a blind spot. Now, by definition, if it's a blind spot, they can't see it. So if you present it to them, they're going to deny it you know, outright initially. So 
I think the challenge is when you're giving people feedback around this stuff is creating the safety and the intimacy and the trust in the relationship that allows people to let their guard down and be open to hearing things that don't necessarily match up with the way they see themselves. And this is a bigger challenge for all leaders and organisations to develop that level of relationship and the quality of what we would call the alliance that we build between people, which is fundamentally built on trust. So short answer is that if there's no trust and mutual respect in the relationship, it's very hard to bring these biases to other people's attention without getting really extreme resistance to it. Now, this book was written by a journalist, not a psychologist. Uh, What effect did that have on the book? Did it make it maybe easier to digest? Yeah, I think it made it more accessible and it, Mm. it basically translates a lot of complex language into lay speak and it just makes it more digestible, I think. Who would you recommend this book to? Oh, it's tempting to be specific, but but honestly, I think every human on the planet needs to read books like this because it just demystifies a lot of stuff and explains a lot of stuff and it makes life a lot easier when you're aware of what you don't know. So that's You Are Not So Smart by David McCraney. Thanks, Travis. My pleasure. Organisational psychologist and leadership coach, Dr Travis Kemp. And thanks for your company today. Thanks also to This Working Life producer, Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong. Until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.